not old-timey crimey. We promised you that we'd still have some good stuff for you to listen to on the feed. And I have another little podcast that I did a couple of seasons of, Detectives by the Decade. And I just so happened to have an episode sitting around that just needed a few edits before it was ready to go. So I'm going to put that up here. And if you enjoy it, there is more where that came from. And the link for Detectives by the Decade is in the show notes. So uh, enjoy and happy holidays. Welcome to Detectives by the Decade. This is the podcast that looks at the detectives, the scientists, and the cases that gave us forensics as we know it today. I'm Christy Baxter. Today we're going to be talking about the Madeline Smith case. Madeline was born on March 29, 1835 in Glasgow, Scotland. She was the oldest of five children in an upper-class family, the daughter and granddaughter of incredibly successful architects on both her paternal and maternal side, respectively. She was well-educated, or as well-educated as a woman in the 1800s was allowed to be. Manners, etiquette, womanly arts, things like that. She was sent to London to attend Mrs. Alice Gordon's Academy for Young Ladies, around the age of 16, and spent two years learning all the things a good upper-class wife would need to know. It was 1853 when she came back to Glasgow. And just the year prior, someone else had come to town. He was also the oldest of five children, and his name was Pierre-Emile Langelier. But he went by Emile, so that's what we'll call him. His background was a little different than Madeline's. Emile was 12 years her senior. His parents were French and had a little home-based business selling seeds, so they were more in the merchant class than the gentry like the Smith family. And Emile was not Glasgow-born. He had grown up on the Channel Islands, which are just off Normandy in the English Channel. Who'd a thunk? Emile knew some English, but was really able to learn the language when his parents had him apprentice at a nursery. That nursery tended to draw in British customers, which was why his parents sent him there, and he did pick up a lot more English during his time there, becoming quite fluent. Then he ended up working at a nursery in Edinburgh for a time, and over the next few years he moved around some until he ended up in Glasgow. So Madeline is fresh out of finishing school, but as much as her family has tried to mold her into this perfect potential little wife, a daughter who hopefully will marry well enough to advance the family and society, she seems to be looking elsewhere for her happiness. 
But while she's looking elsewhere, her family is, of course, looking for just the right husband for her. Madeline was young, attractive, and wealthy. As the Sheffield and Rotherham Independent would tell its readers, The young lady is only in her 19th year, is extremely pretty, and is always dressed in not only the most expensive style, but the most gorgeous manner. All her relations are of the highest society in the west of Scotland. She is talented and accomplished, as well as handsome. And she didn't seem to feel that the good little upper-class housewife life was for her at that moment in time. But was she looking for love or lust? Whatever it was she was looking for, in 1855, something found her. And that was Emile, who at the time had a job as a warehouse clerk. He saw her, wanted to know her, but didn't have a proper introduction. A man in those days couldn't just walk up to an upper-class woman and shake her hand. He needed someone to introduce him to her. And it took him a while, weeks actually, before he found someone. Emile's tenacity ended up in him finding a neighbor of Madeline's who would introduce them, and that really says something about how taken he was with her. The feelings seemed to be mutual. Whether she had actual feelings for him or was attracted to the forbidden fruits he represented, She responded to his overtures, and the two began writing to one another. They even had a few meetings in person, although they couldn't meet at either of their homes. She couldn't even really be seen dining with him. Instead, they would arrange to run into each other in a shop or on the street. Madeline's father, though, was keeping an eagle eye on his unmarried daughter, and he figured out that something was up. When he learned of the friendship blossoming between Madeline and a common laborer, he demanded that she end it. And she did, actually. She wrote Emile a nice letter telling him that they couldn't be friends anymore. And for a few minutes, it looked like that was that. Emile wasn't about to accept defeat so easily, though. The way he looked at it, they had two problems. Her acceptance of her father's demands and their lack of a proper meeting spot where he could woo her in private. So, resolute as usual, Emile convinced Madeline to change her mind. And when she did, he had a place all ready for them to cozy up to each other. He had talked a friend into letting them rendezvous at her house. And rendezvous they did. The secret friendship turned into a secret romance. And they were committed to each other. In the summer of 1856, they actually started planning their wedding. They started calling each other husband and wife. And since they were, you know, married in their minds or whatever, they started taking marital liberties 
with each other. Sometimes at his friend's house, and sometimes when the city and the Smith house had quieted into sound sleep at her family's home. They kept up the correspondence, too. He would slip his through her bedroom window while she sent hers through the mail. She had to burn his, of course, lest her father find out that she hadn't quite followed his mandate to end the friendship. But Emil kept the letters she wrote him, and, throwing caution to the wind, she still kept some of his. And these letters were not those you'd expect a respectable, unmarried, upper-class young woman to be writing or receiving. These two couldn't keep their pens still, either. They exchanged more than 250 letters. While Madeline was cavorting with the man her parents considered Mr. Wrong, they were still searching for their daughter's upper-class Mr. Wright. His name turned out to be Mr. William Minock, and he truly was right for her in their eyes. He was a merchant, so respectable in their estimation, and he had money as well. The Smiths did their best to push Madeline and William Minock together. Just a few months after Madeline and Emile had been dreamily planning their wedding, she was being wooed by Minock at her family's summer house. And that relationship actually went well. He proposed to her in January 1857, and she said yes. Her family was likely ecstatic, or at least satisfied that their plans had gone off without a hitch. So far. Meanwhile, Madeline was probably mentally composing her Dear John letter to Emile. Of course, it would be her Dear Emile letter. She put pen to paper and wrote to him to break off their engagement just a few days after she'd become engaged to Minock. Claiming coolness on both sides, as regarded their relationship, she said they'd be better off as strangers. After laying out some arrangements so she could get her letters and a few other belongings back from him without her parents catching on, she made sure to politely ask that he keep his mouth shut. All in a postscript. P.S. You may be astonished at this sudden change, but for some time back you must have noticed a coolness in my notes. My love for you has ceased, and that is why I was cool. I did once love you truly, fondly, but for some time back, I have lost much of that love. There is no other reason for my conduct, and I think it but right to let you know this. I might have gone on and become your wife, but I could not have loved you as I ought. I know you will never injure the character of one you so fondly loved. No, Emile, I know you have honor and are a gentleman. What has passed you will not mention. I know when I ask you that you will comply. But Emile didn't show up to deliver her letters to the housemaid as she'd asked him. What's more, he wrote her to ask if she truly was engaged to another man, 
as he'd heard around town. Interestingly, Madeline chose to deny the engagement. Whether she was afraid he might have a temper or just didn't want to look bad, we don't know. And she once again said, Hey, by the way, I want my letters back. Emile was like, Well, maybe I have other plans for your letters. Does your father need some sexy, sexy reading material, perchance? Some sources state that he threatened to publish them, even, unless she married him. Madeline tried twice more to convince him to hand the letters over to her. When it looked as though he wouldn't, she decided they'd best see each other in person to work this out. They made plans to meet on the evening of February 19th in Glasgow. Emile suffered severe stomach pain that night, although he was feeling better the next day. How do we know this? He kept a diary. That same week, Madeline was dealing with a little rat problem at home. So, she dropped by the apothecary to pick up some arsenic on February 21st. At this point, buying arsenic wasn't quite as easy as it once had been. The Arsenic Act, passed in the UK in 1851, stipulated that any merchant selling products containing arsenic must keep what became known as a poison book, in which those who purchased items containing arsenic had to sign their names. Arsenic also had to be colored, usually by means of soot or indigo, to make it more noticeable and distinguishable from common household cooking ingredients like sugar, which it especially resembled, or flour. That means that when Madeline bought the arsenic to kill the rats, she had to sign the poison book. And she did, as M. H. Smith. The next morning, Emile came home after being out, we don't know where, and was sick again. He didn't bounce back so quickly this time, though. He could barely get out of bed for a week until early March. What was Madeline doing in early March? Well, still dealing with that pesky rat problem, apparently, as she had to go buy more arsenic on March 6th. Oddly, Emile got sick again just a few days later, on March 9th. It seemed he was starting to make some connections on some level, even though he was by and large staying blind to those very connections. He told his friend regarding Madeline, I cannot think of why I was so unwell after getting that coffee and chocolate from her, but if she were to poison me, I would forgive her. A week later, Madeline dropped by the apothecary to pick up even more arsenic because those were some determined and hardy rats. Emile was out of town on vacation for a week, but came back after only three days due to a letter he'd received 
that required his attention. He told his landlady he'd be out late that night, and he was. Around 2 a.m. on March 23, 1857, he came home, and the landlady noticed his arrival because it was loud. He was in a lot of pain and on the verge of collapse. The landlady called the doctor, but despite his prescription of drinking lots of warm water to rinse the stomach out, Emile was convulsing in agony all night. The next day, he summoned his friend Miss Perry, saying, I never felt like this before. I do not think it is bile. I think I should be better if I got a little sleep. The doctor returned that afternoon to find Emile dead. And in his pocket was found the reason for his hasty return to Glasgow. A letter in which Madeline expressed a very strong desire for his return so they could meet up. Three days later, Madeline had just vanished. Her sister awoke that morning to find that she was the only one in their shared bed. And before you ask, no, I don't know how it worked, that they met up for some loving on the lowdown, down low, whatever, when her sister shared a bed with her. Maybe when her sister was out of town was the only time. I, I don't know the logistics. I don't know what decisions they made. Regardless, Madeline's family and fiancé searched desperately for her, even going so far as to hop on a steamer to check the family's summer house. She wasn't at the summer house, though. She was on the very boat they'd boarded. When they questioned her, all she would say was that she had run away because she had done something and her parents were going to be upset. Her fiancé and her brother took her home. Meanwhile, a post-mortem examination of Emile's body was ordered. The doctors removed the stomach from the body, then sent it off to be buried. At first, they didn't do anything with the stomach, until the sheriff told them some stuff was looking suspicious, at which point, they sent it to the best chemist Glasgow had to offer. Tests revealed 86 grains of arsenic in his stomach. And it only takes about four, five grains to do someone in. With that, they exhumed the body so as to check for arsenic in the tissue, which the Guardian told contemporary readers would reveal whether there had been repeated doses of arsenic. And the Guardian was correct on that account. A 2020 study found that arsenic traces and metabolites could be found in various brain tissues of mice after long-term exposure, as well as in several other organs. Interestingly, the amount of arsenic that sticks around depends on the organ, and the type of metabolites. Outside of the coroner's table, they found something else interesting. 
Madeline's Letters to Emile It only took a little asking around to find out about her numerous purchases of arsenic, and that was enough for the authorities. They arrested Madeline. In those early days, a lot of people, as well as the press, had a hard time putting any stock in her guilt. From the London Observer, The accused preserves her equanimity exceedingly, and her demeanor is certainly not that of a guilty person. The police had other thoughts. They based their arrest on the mountains of evidence they found in Emile's room. Letters, papers, his diary. And the diary wouldn't be allowed in as evidence, so don't get your hopes up. Love a diary being entered into testimony. It's so dramatic. Madeline did talk to police, and she said, Emil? I haven't seen that guy in like three weeks. Oddly specific. Then, at least as far as I'm concerned, her responses got a little curious. One would think that, after all the lengths she'd gone to both definitely and allegedly, in order to hide this relationship, she would have sworn up and down that it never happened. But when they asked her about her romantic, emotional, and sexual relationship with Emile, she didn't deny it. They also asked her about the arsenic she'd been known to have purchased. She had a response at the ready for that. She'd used it to wash her arms after diluting it with water. To that I say, please stop. Few things make me want to build a time machine like societally accepted, no, encouraged poisoning of oneself for the sake of beauty standards. Even if that's probably not what she was even using the arsenic for. And yeah, I'm sure there's some crap in my eyeshadow or mascara or whatever that has some effects we don't know about. So, if any time travelers are listening to this, I'd like you to know that I'm open to new knowledge. Do with that information what you will. Anyhow, Madeline had an answer for everything. She told the apothecary that the arsenic was for rats. Why was she saying now that it was for cosmetic purposes? Well, because she was embarrassed, of course. Certainly not because, had the police asked her family, they would have likely said, Rats? What rats? We don't have rats. We're upper class. As for whether she'd used that arsenic on a meal, she swore up and down that she would never. When served with the indictment after being in jail for a few months, Miss Smith was perfectly cool, firm, and unmoved. Her dad wasn't doing as well. It is stated that the father of the young lady has become deranged in consequence of the awful position in which she is placed. Mr. Smith is winding up his business and releasing his property with the view of leaving the country with his family upon the termination of the trial.
And as for demeanors, Emile's was being looked at as well. In the press, and later in court, the question of whether his death by arsenic could have been self-administered arose. The Essex County Standard told its readers that Emile had, before Madeline's entrance into his life, twice suffered a broken heart and each time had threatened suicide. Other reports had him actually attempting it on at least one occasion. So with public opinion generally leaning in Madeline's direction, the trial started at the end of June, 1857. This case of a beautiful, promising daughter of privilege who'd been caught up in a relationship with someone society thought beneath her? Well, it had public sensation written all over it. In fact, the poisoning was being called the crime of the century. So they changed the trial's venue from Glasgow to Edinburgh. As the Courier and Argus said in its breathless reporting, The court was unusually crowded, the extraordinary nature of the case having occasioned extreme interest. The appearance of the young lady as she took her place at the bar was narrowly scrutinized, but, whether from the consciousness of innocence or otherwise, she betrayed no appearance of embarrassment or emotion beyond a slight flush on her cheeks. She was attired in the ordinary walking dress of a young lady belonging to that class of society with which she is connected. Madeline, of course, pleaded not guilty. Emile's landlord was one of the first to testify, and uh, it's a pretty brutal description of arsenic poisoning. Of course, arsenic poisoning is pretty much always brutal, but, you know, if her testimony is any indication, Emile at least had a competent and empathetic woman by his side in his last hours someone willing to deal with chamber pots and to fetch the doctor and to preserve vomit for the doctor's examination. She reported that his last words were, If I could get five minutes of sleep, I think I would be better. This testimony was said to be very moving to everyone in the courtroom, except Madeline. The papers didn't hesitate to tell their readers what they thought her seeming lack of emotion meant. Innocent of the crime charged, she should not have been so composed and indifferent when listening to statements relating to the cruel end of one she had so recently passionately loved. Strange and unnatural to say, to Madeline Smith alone his horrible death seems to have been no shock, no grief and she demeaned herself on her trial, as if L'Angelet had never had a place in her affections. If it had been a trial for poisoning a dog, the indifference could not have been greater. Really, she stayed completely calm, never having to make use of the smelling salts she kept close. The only emotion she really showed was some discomfort, and that was when her letters to Emile were read in court. And really, who wouldn't squirm when your love letters are being read in a court of law? That is uncomfortable. 
There was a lot of public opinion about the trial and about Madeline. Some thought that the newspapers shouldn't even publicize it. And as for Madeline, one reader of The Spectator said, If she be guilty, how horrible the combination of ungoverned passion with perfect self-control, and how frightful the outburst of this deep, deadly wickedness. Not that Emile went unscathed, being the dead victim and all. One paper called him a showy, sentimental Frenchman below her rank in life. They also called him worthless, a scoundrel, and a rascal, and accused him of taking advantage of her affections. Now, if everything happened as history has decided it happened, and as I've presented here, then yeah, I can see how certainly Emile was not a stand-up guy and journalists have a duty to point that out. This particular article, though, presents things in such a manner that it gets pretty victim-blamey. The writer removes Madeline's agency in the affair almost entirely, then finishes up by basically saying, well, isn't this really all his fault anyhow? The betrayer threatens her with exposure and is callous to one of the most agonizing appeals ever wrung from woman. There ends the story, so far as we have a right to narrate it, save that the rascal dies, apparently by poison, and there is retribution for the destruction of Madeline Smith. I mean, I guess at least there's an internal consistency to their logic. Madeline had no agency when she and Emile had an affair, and she had no agency when she poisoned him, if she even did it at all. I guess what it really comes down to is that if a woman can't be responsible for who she sleeps with, she certainly can't be responsible for who she kills. And look, as regards power and agency in the 1800s, and how those two things clashed with things like money, social standing, and gender, especially gender, that's a thorny, complex topic. No, that's several thorny, complex topics. And I'm not going to delve into any of those today, because this is not the 1800s sociological podcast. Sometimes it kind of is, I guess. But to basically say, Emile had it coming... He had only himself to blame. If you'd have been there, if, if you'd have seen it, I betcha you would, have, you would have done the same. This is Scotland, not Chicago, and you can't fool me with that razzle-dazzle. Really, the Aberdeen Herald might have gotten closest to the truth, or at least to some sense of even-handedness. We are satisfied that Emile Langelier was not so black and Madeline Smith not quite so near a pinkish white as the defense attorney seemed to paint them. I mean, I wouldn't word it like that today, but that goes for pretty much most things in old-timey newspapers. Still, good for you, Aberdeen Herald. As the trial went on, 
even Madeline's frequent poison purchasing didn't quite nail her down because she had a perfectly acceptable excuse. Well, two excuses, technically, but she ditched the rat infestation thing and decided to forge ahead with the cosmetics excuse. According to the Cheshire Observer, the possession of this poison, however, is compatible with entire innocence, for it is known that arsenic is occasionally used by young ladies as a cosmetic. And where is my time machine? One important aspect of the Crown's case was connecting Madeline to Emile on the dates when he'd been sick. If they couldn't even prove that she'd been anywhere near him, after all, they could hardly prove she'd murdered him. Because these were, by their very nature, secret meetings, the only witnesses to them at the time of the trial were Madeline herself and the words Emile had left behind in his journal. The judges wouldn't allow the diary to be entered into evidence because its author was dead and therefore could not be cross-examined. And neither could Madeline. The accused could not take the stand. Thus, there was no connection between Madeline and the times Emile got sick. And according to her defense, it was highly unlikely that Madeline was responsible for Emile's death simply because it was so out of character. The papers balked at the improbability of this burning, passionate, guilty girl being suddenly transformed into a savage, cold, deliberate murderess. And, of course, the article that recounted that defense also went to great pains to say, well, Anything could have transformed her into a murderess. It was that jerk Emile. A mean and more contemptible scoundrel it would be difficult to conceive, and probably his low, selfish character prompted that sort of unhealthy popular sympathy with Madeline Smith, which seems to prevail at any rate in Edinburgh. A profligate, vain adventurer, boasting, as it seems, of good fortune and trafficking with this liaison as perhaps a means of advancement. This is what L'Angelier was. Her defense also brought up an issue of timing. The Crown was contending that she'd purchased arsenic to sicken and kill Emile, but the first purchase was actually made a few days after his first bout of sickness. So the biggest hurdle the prosecution had to clear was proving that Emile and Madeline had even seen each other during the weeks of off-and-on illness leading up to his death. After nine days in court, the jury went to deliberate. I'm going to give you a few seconds to guess just how long this deliberation lasted. Okay, who had 30 minutes? Winner. And what you win is a good heaping dose of self-respect. Now, before you guess what verdict they settled on in that epic deliberation session, 
you should know that in Scottish law, there's a unique additional option besides guilty or not guilty. The third verdict is not proven. Not proven is, in fact, a type of acquittal and has the exact same effect legally. Societally, it feels more like a guilty verdict, so it's a little bit of both in my eyes. It's the Neapolitan ice cream of verdicts. Really, what not proven is saying is that, yeah, the defendant probably did it, but the prosecution wasn't able to, well, prove it enough for a guilty verdict. It's this weird but fascinating limbo of guilty in spirit but not in reality. That's at least the common definition from the general public's point of view. Interestingly, though, some Scottish legal experts consider the not proven verdict more a result of incompetent jurors than incompetent prosecutors. One stated that the purpose of the law was at least somewhat, quote, traced to the recognition of the inability of an unskilled jury to interpret the significance of particular facts, end quote. It's known as a Scottish verdict outside of Scotland, and in Scotland, it can be called either a not proven verdict, or if you're feeling like channeling Sir Walter Scott, and who isn't, a bastard verdict. Scott really wasn't into the not proven verdict. One who is not proved guilty is innocent in the eyes of the law. So, as you may have guessed from that explanation of the not proven verdict, yeah, that was the end result for Madeline. That was the weird legal limbo that Madeline existed in for the rest of her life. And it shows that just because you have forensic evidence, as in the case of the arsenic grains found in Emile's stomach, doesn't mean you have a guilty verdict, especially when there's a third option. The final blow to the Crown's case came belatedly, about a week after the trial, in the form of evidence that might have helped to prove their case. After losing the case because they couldn't prove there were any assignations between Madeline and Emile in that crucial three weeks, along comes a witness with really what amounts to too little, too late. This man was witness to a tender moment suspected to be between Emile and Madeline. Two young people were spotted behind the Smith home one night uttering words of endearment, and the male half of the pair was dressed in the same fashion Emile generally wore. The witness was certain of what he'd seen, as the Glasgow Herald tells us. The impression of this witness is that the young female was not an ordinary streetwalker, but a lady. Thanks for clearing that up, journalists. But wait! 
The Herald is not done yet. In discussing the late witness, the newspaper goes on to say that... We think the gentleman to whom we have referred was singularly stupid in not recollecting such an important matter in connection with a case of great notoriety till his mind was awakened by the record of the trial. At least Emile isn't the only person the newspapers rabidly insult. Although, Emile at least isn't around to hear it. But in this trial, and the public reaction to it, we see that some things really never change. Comments about the trial in Madeline that could have been written today about various groups of people. The passion for notoriety is the insanity of the age throughout the civilized world. Madeline, meanwhile, went off to live her life. Or at least, to try to live it. And obviously, she was no longer engaged to Mr. Minock. Upon leaving the jail, she did send thank-you notes to the prison chaplain and matron. Good breeding. In these letters, she said that really, she would have preferred not guilty as a verdict. And then she changed her last name to Obvious. And she wasn't the only one who had a firm opinion as to the preferable verdict. Although, not everyone took her side. Her case was so famous, with the public so divided over her guilt and relative culpability in both the affair and the murder, that she pretty much had to leave the country. And obviously, she was no longer engaged to Mr. Minock. By the end of the 1850s, she was living in London again. She was able to socialize with intellectuals and seemed to rather enjoy her life there, perhaps much more after she actually changed her name to Lena, a childhood nickname. In 1861, she married George Wardle, an artist. Madeline Smith easily transformed into Lena Wardle, with only a select few knowing her true identity and the history behind it. The couple had two children, a girl in 1863 and a boy in 1864. Madeline slash Lena developed an interest in politics, getting involved in the Fabian Society, which advocated for the peaceful implementation of democratic socialism. All the stress of the trial and the disruption to his life likely affected Mr. Smith pretty badly. He died in 1863, only 55 years old. He had however, acted as a witness in his daughter's wedding and even provided her with a £100 a year income. That's about 12000 U.S. dollars today. Madeline slash Lena continued her interest in socialism, passing it on to her children as they grew to adults, 
and she and George married the two children off. Then they went their separate ways. Her past wasn't quite behind her, though, even all these decades later, particularly when someone stole the letters from her murder trial and passed them along to an Edinburgh bookshop to sell. That was in 1890, over 30 years after the trial. And it may have been the embarrassment over that rehashing of her past that drove her to put even more distance between herself and the murder trial, geographically. She moved to America in 1893, where she settled in New York. She fudged her age just a bit on her immigration papers, shaving a whopping 20 years off her age. So, as far as the government was concerned, she was in her 30s, and in fact, younger than her son, who also lived in New York. George died in 1910, and that freed Madeline slash Lena to remarry at the sprightly, real age of 70. This final romance was with a concrete contractor named William Sheehy, who was about 25 years younger than her, or five years if you took her official age at its word. They stayed married for 15 years until Sheehy died in 1926. Two years later, in 1928, Madeline slash Lena Hamilton, Smith, Wardle, Sheehy, passed away. She was in her early 90s, but still holding tight to her fictitious age. And thus, records have her passing in her early 70s. She was buried as Lena Sheehy at Mount Hope Cemetery in New York. Emil was buried in the plot of some family friends in Glasgow, and his grave is featured in an article on Atlas Obscura. The grave is in a churchyard behind the Ramshorn Theatre, which was once a church. If Madeline and Emile had carried on their doomed affair to its sad end today, it's highly unlikely she would have gotten away with it. Someone's ring camera would have caught her and Emile sneaking around, and word would almost certainly have gone around the neighborhood, if not the internet. She would almost certainly have had to resort to another poison, or even another method of murder altogether, if she murdered him. Remember, not proven. But if she did it, I think we can see from her approach to dealing with Emile that she was hardly careful enough that she would have avoided leaving any sort of trace evidence that they would find more easily today. The building housing the apartment where Madeline and her family lived is now the offices of the British Legal Life Assurance Company. Even though life insurance wasn't involved here, 
It's still ironic to me, considering how many cases they likely handled where arsenic, also known as inheritor's powder, was the reason they were paying out. And, of course, it's said that Madeline's restless spirit haunts the building. There were many articles about this as the building was put on the market in 2017, although not a single one mentioned anything more specific than, oh, there's a legend this murderess haunted her old apartment. The property, despite the obvious fact that a woman who led a long, happy life after her turbulent youth was somehow haunting it, was snapped up by a development company for £2.45 million. That's over $3.4 million U.S. dollars. That's most of what I have on Madeline Smith, but stay tuned after the credits and the sources. Instead of a weird blooper or some idiotic thing I said during recording, as I sometimes put at the end there for the real long-haul listeners to catch, I have one more little tidbit from Madeline's later life. And how even an ocean and seven decades later, she couldn't escape her past. Thank you so much for listening. Rate, review, subscribe, you know the drill. You can email me at detectivesbythedecade at gmail.com. You can also hear more of my somewhat scratchy voice at this point because allergies by coming over to Old Timey Crimey and giving us a listen where we talk about historical true crimes. You can also check me out over on Short Story, Short Podcast. Links for both of these shows can be found in the show notes or just look us up wherever you're listening to this very show. It's that easy. Detectives by the Decade is researched, written, and produced by me, Christy Baxter. Music by Kevin McLeod, Music L Files, and Chilled Music. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. My sources are Douglas McGowan on Crime Library, accessed by Murderpedia, two articles on Wikipedia about the Arsenic Act and the Not Proven Verdict, the Edinburgh News, Undiscovered Scotland, J. Lee, Y. Guau, I apologize for any mispronunciations, X. Duan et al. Uh, in Biological Trace Element Research, Bill Greenwell on BillGreenwell.com, Ian the Pict, Christy Dorsey on Insider, Joseph M. Barbado on Indiana International and Comparative Law Review, Atlas Obscura, and the following newspapers via newspapers.com. Thank you, Chris Garcia. Cheshire Observer, the Glasgow Herald, the Observer, and the Caledonian Mercury. One final story about Madeline's later years. After fleeing Scotland for England, then England for America, after marrying twice and surviving both husbands, after having two children 
and several grandchildren. Madeline Smith, a.k.a. Lena Sheehy, just couldn't escape her poisoning trial of so many decades before. A film company in the 20s wanted to do a movie about her case, and they really wanted an interview. The story goes that they wanted it so badly that they tracked her down to her little apartment in the Bronx, where she'd moved after being widowed for the second time. They wanted it so badly that, after tracking her down, they tried to blackmail her. A 90-something-year-old woman. If she gave the interview, they said, they wouldn't tell the whole world where it could find the not-proven murderess. And they certainly wouldn't do anything that might result in her citizen status being revoked. She gave the interview, or at least that's the story we hear today. This movie appears to either never have been made or have been lost to time. But if it was seen, then the world would have seen a Madeline who seven decades later was a bit fuzzy on the details of the case, right down to the victim's first name. It could have been the effects of old age, sure. Or it could have been one last attempt to shield herself from the notoriety, the infamy that had chased her through so many decades and across so many thousands of miles. 